Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, Joe and Todd discover the remains of the missing Murdoch family up at Mirror Lake. Their mutilated bodies and shredded clothing resemble that of Judith Dalton. Meanwhile, Greg Vivian, using a remote hunting shack as a base of operations, crept onto the property of his former boss, Tim Harvey, seeking revenge. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. It'll be dark soon. Are you sure you don't want any company, Joe? Todd said as he pulled his cruiser to a stop just above the Kittredge house. No, I just want to retrace her steps. See what she saw. Just meet me on the road just below the woodlot, Joe said, as he opened the door and climbed out. He walked across the road and made his way up the steep incline and started down the path toward the playground. He glanced at his watch. It was just about this time yesterday that the Dalton girl had made her way down the same path. In the dimming light, an unseasonably cold wind rushed past him pushing him along, making him hunch his shoulders and draw his body in against its frigid assault. He wondered if the wind had pushed her along in the same manner. He tried to remember if it had been windy yesterday. The sound of the wind rushing through the tree boughs overhead drew his attention. Looking up, he saw the dark, foreboding silhouettes of the giant pines sway back and forth. The wind died away, only to return just moments later, stronger this time, once again pushing him forward. What would have possessed the ten-year-old girl to walk down this deserted path, all alone? I feel unsettled, uneasy in this shadowy, isolated tract of woods, and I'm an adult, he thought to himself. He continued down the path until off in the distance to his left, Through the lonely stand of trees in the fading light, he could just make out the smallest glimpse of yellow tape that marked the crime scene. He continued on the path until he reached the playground. He could see her house. It was just fifty yards beyond the playground. She was so close. He turned and looked back down the path. Why had she stepped off the path back there? Did she see something that frightened her? that made her run back down the path and into the woods. Suddenly, he felt as if someone or something were watching him. 
He had felt it all along as he made his way down the narrow path, but now the feeling was overwhelming. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw it, there in the underbrush. He saw what it was, three sets of yellow eyes staring at him. Now he knew what had made her go back down the path. Her mother had mentioned it to him. There in the dim light of dusk, he could just make out the shape of the three koi dogs through the thick undergrowth. They emerged from the brush, their ears at attention, noses sniffing the air. He shouted, Get out of here! simultaneously waving both hands, making a lunging motion forward with his body. Their ears flattened against their heads. They retreated into the brush and began to growl. Perhaps it was the koi dogs that had prevented her from crossing the playground. He backed down the path, keeping the animals in sight, moving cautiously, just as he supposed she had. When he reached the point where he had glimpsed the yellow tape, he stepped off the path into the woods and drew his weapon. He pushed his way through the brush past some maples. He heard a low growl, twigs breaking. He listened more carefully and slowly started to make his way toward the sound. He stepped on a dry twig. It snapped. Startled by the sound, a snarling koi dog turned to face him. Its hair raised, its lips curled, its yellow teeth bared. Behind it lay the deer it was feeding on. It lunged forward. His weapon's report echoed through the still woods, rousing startled birds from their roost as they took flight, seeking temporary sanctuary in the darkening sky. The koi dog lay there on the ground, motionless. The light was so low now that from where he stood he couldn't tell if it was breathing. He broke a dead branch from a nearby tree with one hand, keeping his weapon trained on the animal with the other. He nudged the koi dog three times with the branch. It didn't move. It was dead. He knelt down to check the deer carcass. He pulled the flashlight from his utility belt and inspected the dead animal. It was a recent kill, probably within the last 24 hours. Perhaps within the same time frame that Judith Dalton lost her life. The animal's throat had been cut. He checked the rest of its body and found several stab wounds. He swept his light in a circle around the dead deer, looking for a place someone could have hidden and surprised the animal. He saw two spots that were possibilities, but highly unlikely. In all his years as a hunter, he'd never heard of anyone successfully jacking a deer by jumping out from cover, but the fact remained that the deer was dead. Who did this? Maybe it was the same person who killed Judith Dalton. He stood up and started to walk toward the crime scene. Ten yards from where he'd found the deer, he came upon a moss-covered deadfall. The moss looked as though it had been disturbed recently. He walked around the rotting tree and found traces of blood on one of its sharp, broken branches. Had Judith Dalton run this way? Did that trace of blood belong to her? Joe grimaced. He continued walking on some 50 yards until he reached the yellow tape that marked the crime scene. Joe ducked under the yellow tape and walked over to the stake that marked the spot where Judith Dalton's body had been. A fresh gust of wind sent leaves rushing past him, brushing his pant legs. He was keenly aware of everything around him. He peered thoughtfully at the surrounding brush, immediately feeling foolish for doing so. What did he expect to see? The killer lingering there? 
he chided himself. Even something as innocuous as wind-blown leaves rushing past him had drawn his attention, put him on guard. He squatted down and ran his finger over the tip of the rough wooden stake, momentarily lost in thought. Was the killer someone she knew? He stood up, and in the gathering darkness he continued in the direction Judith Dalton had been heading in. He knew the country road wasn't far. What he didn't know was where on the country road he would end up. It didn't take him long to find out. He had only walked about 25 or 30 yards more when he saw the first house lights twinkling through the trees. He walked another 10 yards or so before the level ground suddenly fell away, becoming a fairly steep slope. He stared at the road below, trying to figure out what had happened, why Judith had changed course. The koi dogs could have blocked her path through the playground. If that were the case, she might have been afraid of them and backtracked like he had just done, then stepped off the path. It seemed logical to assume that she was trying to make it to the road. That would have been quicker than retracing her steps all the way back down the path to the Kittredge house. And she would have been right if someone hadn't intercepted her. Small saplings dotted the slope all the way down to the road. Joe caught hold of one sapling and then another to help slow his downward movement. It didn't take long before he reached the road below. He looked around. Twenty yards to his left, he saw the Benoit house. There were three more houses just beyond on the same side of the road. All four houses had their porch lights on. She had almost made it. She was so close. Whoever had killed her hadn't seemed to care that Judith Dalton had been so close to the country road, so close to help. That hadn't deterred her killer. Then he thought of the little boy who had been murdered over in Lancaster. His killer had murdered that little boy right in his own backyard. Coincidence? He didn't think so. But it was much too early for speculation. Joe saw two headlights blink on and watched as they approached. It was Todd's cruiser. It stopped beside him and Joe climbed in. What happened up there? I heard a gunshot. I was just about to head up into those woods after you, Todd said. I shot a koi dog, Joe replied slowly thoughtfully, as he looked back at the woods he'd just exited. Why didn't she keep running? Why? She was so close. Questions I just don't have answers to, Joe mumbled to himself. Any particular reason why you shot it? It charged me. You think it was rabid? No, it just didn't want to share what it had found. What do you mean? It was feeding on a deer. A deer? We didn't see any deer. Joe didn't respond. Do you think that pack of koi dogs Daryl Dalton said he saw around the playground brought it down? Not unless those koi dogs carried knives. So someone was up there jacking deer? Sheriff, do you think that he killed the girl because she saw him do it? Joe stared at Todd for a moment. He knew that murder didn't make sense. It wasn't a rational crime. Still, he didn't want to think that someone would kill a child simply because she'd witnessed a deer jacking. I don't know, Todd. He went back to his own thoughts. What was the connection between the little boy's murder in Lancaster and Judith Dalton's murder? Was there a connection between those two murders and the murders at Mirror Lake? Could it be the same killer? Had he been in the area for over three months? If so, 
Why had he waited so long before he killed again? Or had he? Were there other bodies that they hadn't found yet? There were too many questions. Todd slowed the cruiser as he pulled into the parking lot outside the station house. His cruiser's headlights illuminated the rear end of a black sedan parked in an area restricted to police personnel. It bore out-of-state license plates. What's this guy's problem? He's got the whole damn parking lot and he decides to pull into one of our spots? The cruiser jerked to a stop beside the sedan. Goddamn out-of-staters, can't they read? The sudden stop and Todd's vehement question brought Joe out of a long, thoughtful silence. What? In two weeks, it's going to be hunting season, and this town is going to be crawling with out-of-staters. That's going to make our job a hell of a lot harder, Todd swore. Joe was aware of Todd's growing frustration and anger. He knew it wasn't the guy parked next to them or hunting season that was bothering Todd. It was the fact that Todd had known Judith Dalton. Hell, they all had. She'd grown up right here in Grover's Notch. She was part of their town, their community. She was one of their own, a child who'd had a future that was suddenly, tragically cut short. It wasn't that the little boy in Lancaster and the family at Mirror Lake weren't as important. It was that they were strangers. There was no connection. So you could step back and allow yourself to be detached, to a point, from what you'd seen. But it wasn't that way with Judith. There were too many connections. Even if you hadn't known her personally, you knew her family. What made it even harder to handle was the vicious way in which she'd been killed. He looked at his deputy. Todd, we're going to get this guy. He's not going to get away. Do you understand? Joe said in an attempt to reassure himself as well as his deputy. He was all too aware of the obstacles that could keep him from making that statement a reality. Todd took a long, deep breath and stared straight ahead. Damn it, Sheriff. Do you know how many strangers pass through this town? How many camp out in the woods that surround Grover's Notch? How are we going to make sure we find them all? Account for their whereabouts, Todd asked flatly. The weather is on our side, Todd. It's getting too cold for people to camp out in the woods. They're going to either rent one of the hunting camps or find a room at the inn or the motel on the edge of town. In the meantime, we can check the camps and see if any of them have been broken into. See if anyone in town has rented out any rooms over the last few days. That means the inn, the motel, any beds and breakfasts, anyone who has a spare room for rent. But Sheriff, there's so many old abandoned camps that the killer could hide out in, and we'd never know it. We don't know where all of them are. We have to start somewhere, Todd, so we'll start with the camps that we do know about. After that, we'll talk with some of the older residents and ask them about any old abandoned camps that they might know of, and we'll check those out. Sheriff, we don't have the manpower to do all that. We're going to need help, Todd replied. Then we'll get help, just like we did last night when we searched for Judith Dalton. Sheriff, those men weren't trained. They were just volunteers. They all know this area. Those are the people we need to check the camps. I'm betting that some of those same men know of old abandoned camps where someone could hide, Joe said. We're going to just turn those men loose with loaded guns? No, Todd, we're going to be with them. I'm not going to bring in the state police until I have to. For right now, we're going to handle this ourselves. Todd nodded his head slowly. 
Sheriff, I've been thinking that this guy is from one of those big cities. Maybe one of those people released from a psychiatric hospital who's been living on the streets and just decided to drift north because only a crazy man could do that to a child. Todd, he doesn't have to be from the city. He could be from right here. I can't believe that there's anyone in this town who would do something like that to a child. Sheriff, you grew up in this town just like I did. You know these people, and so do I. God damn it, I don't want to even think that someone from around here could do something like that. Joe could see Todd's eyes close, his shoulders droop, his body go slack. He felt that he'd just shattered Todd's futile attempt to distance his life, his town, the people he knew, everything he'd grown up to believe in from the ugliness that had crept like a thief into Grover's Notch. Todd leaned back in his seat and looked over at the black sedan in a way that made Joe think that Todd half expected it to be gone. But it wasn't. It was still there. This guy here, Joe said, pointing at the black sedan, he's probably just lost. Todd sat up straight. There was a determination to his demeanor, almost as if he'd made up his mind about something. He looked back at Joe. In a voice that was no more than a tight whisper, he said as he pulled the keys out of the ignition, Seems like we're all lost, Sheriff. This town needs out-of-staters to survive. It can't live without the money they spend each season. But I'm betting that one of them has brought our town more than just a few extra dollars. I'm convinced that the sick son of a bitch who's responsible for all of these murders is one of them, Sheriff. Joe didn't respond. In his heart, he wanted to believe what Todd believed but he knew he couldn't afford to do that. He and Todd just stepped out of the cruiser and walked silently to the station house. As he approached the station house door, Joe wondered if the coroner had called. He hadn't had the bodies very long, but maybe he had come up with some unofficial findings. The station house door closed with a dull thud behind him. Eve, any word from the coroner? No, not yet, Sheriff, but Harbinger called again. He wants to know if you found out anything more about the Dalton girl's murder. He also wanted to know if you had any suspects. Hasn't anyone notified that fool that he lost the election? Todd quipped. He's a taxpayer and a concerned citizen, Joe replied sarcastically. He's just a royal pain, Eve replied flatly. Eve, do you know who owns the black sedan that's parked in the sheriff's spot? I'm telling you even after winning the election and getting a brand new SUV with all the bells and whistles. He still gets no respect around here, Todd remarked with a slight smile on his face. I think we can do without the commentary, Todd, Joe replied drolly. But I was wondering the same thing, Eve. Sheriff, I think that car belongs to your visitor. Joe stared at Eve for a moment and then looked around the small room. Visitor? He's in the men's room, Sheriff. Does he have a name? She glanced down at something scribbled across her pad. Yes, his name is Jared Ross. Jared Ross, Joe said, the tone of his voice changing, his face brightening for the first time since the whole horrible nightmare with the Dalton girl had begun the day before. Yes. Joe hadn't seen Jared since he'd left the force three years ago. There had been the occasional phone call, their way of keeping in contact with one another in a loose sort of way but nothing more definitive than that. Sheriff Martin, a familiar voice said. Joe turned and Jared flashed him that disarming smile of his. 
His six-foot, one-inch frame carried just a little more weight. Jared had always taken care of himself physically. It was probably muscle, Joe surmised. The only thing that looked unfamiliar was the sling that Jared wore on his left arm. They exchanged an awkward, brief, one-armed hug. Recent? Joe asked, stepping back. Very, Jared replied. Don't tell me. They twisted your arm and forced you to go on vacation, Joe said with a smirk. Jared's smile wasn't quite as broad, but he replied amiably, Oh, so you remember how persuasive the captain can be. So how much time do you have off? I don't know. It depends. I was going stir-crazy just sitting around my apartment, and then I remembered what you said the last time we spoke about how quiet and restful this little town of yours was and how I should come up and visit if I ever got the time. So I rented a car, threw some clothes in a bag, and here I am. I'm glad you finally decided to take me up on my offer, Joe replied with a warm smile. Why don't we go down to my office? Oh, wait, wait, where are my manners? Let me introduce you to everyone first. And now, a preview of our next episode. With the arrival of Joe's former partner, Jared Ross, come questions as to the real purpose of his visit. What isn't Jared telling Joe, and why is he drawing so much attention from the townsfolk? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.